from Cadian K Community Access Radio in Carbondale, Colorado, in the United States, this is program number 43 of the Tactile Traveler, empowering blind and low vision people to explore the world and helping our sighted friends see the world in a new way. I'm Nick Eisenberg. When blind people go places, we don't experience things like our sighted friends. We don't see beautiful mountains or romantic sunsets. The goal of this program is to identify and even create experiences that are more meaningful and just more exciting for us and for our sighted traveling companions. Frequently, as people lose their sight, they become more and more isolated. The Tactile Traveler not only hopes to help people literally go around the world, but around the block to new adventures in their lives. Blind rangers from people who are visually impaired and glasses and contact lenses no longer allow them to lead a normal life. To people like me, who are totally blind. To sighted parents who have a blind child. Blind parents who have sighted children. Blind parents with blind children and people of all ages, interests, and physical abilities. On today's program, how marijuana affects surgery and what you need to tell your anesthesiologist, blind runners, and flight for sight. If you use marijuana and you're going on a trip to the hospital for surgery or even something as simple as a colonoscopy, be sure to tell your doctor an anesthesiologist that you use marijuana. Actually, that's crucial, and that's what we really want people to know. That's Dr. Jennifer Coleman, an anesthesiologist and senior medical director for anesthesia at University of Colorado Health in Southern Colorado. Dr. Coleman says marijuana use will affect how much, sometimes up to 10 times as much anesthesia that you will need to stay asleep during surgery, and how you feel and how you'll need to be treated after you wake up. Everyone is different, and it really depends on the person, uh, their own metabolism of their medications, and their own pain tolerance. It depends on what they're having done, but our experience is that in general, for the vast majority of marijuana users, if we don't make adjustments to the medications that we're giving and the things that we're doing for them, they have a harder time after surgery. So it may only take a minute or two for us to give the extra medications to go to sleep in the operating room if we're not prepared for that with their dose up front. But once the patient gets to the recovery room uh, and they're having increased pain, the recovery nurses will go through our normal pain medications before they call the anesthesiologist to let us know that those pain medications aren't working. So the patient may be in increased pain for 30 minutes, maybe an hour, before we start trying something different, something new. Then if that if we need to just start a different medication, that can take an extra 15 minutes. But if we need to do something like a nerve block, it can take us 30 minutes to get that set up and, and put in, and then another 20 minutes after that for the nerve block to really set up. So that poor patient can be suffering uh, more than normal for quite a period of time before we get their pain adequately taken care of if we're not aware beforehand. 
Here in Colorado, anyone over 18 can legally use marijuana. But it's equally important to tell your doctors if you use marijuana in states where it isn't yet legal. Really aren't going to turn them into the cops uh, if they use marijuana or any other recreational drug. What we want to do is provide the best medical care possible for each person. And so if people are really upfront with us about how much they use and when they've last used it, we can really tailor the care to help decrease negative outcomes. We can make sure that we have alternate plans for pain control so that if opioid medications aren't working, we can shift to something else or even start off with something else so that they don't have as much pain when they're waking up. We can also plan to treat the non that can occur after surgery in, in marijuana users. And then when people are up on the floor after surgery, say they've had a larger surgery and they're going to stay in the hospital for a few days, we can watch for cannabis withdrawal syndrome, which causes really unpleasant side effects for them and can look like other problems like infection or cardiac arrest. If we don't know what we're looking at, symptoms like restlessness, nominal pain, fever, chills, sweating, headache, change in their persona, being very irritable and angry. Dr. Coleman says she will figure out if you use marijuana when she begins putting you to sleep, but then she will order a special monitor, which isn't usually in the operating room, and she'll have to order extra medicine from the pharmacy. Funny, it can require either more or less. And a lot of that depends on when that person last used and kind of the, the chronicity of their use. So personally, I like to use a brainwave monitor to help me tell exactly how asleep that person is so that I can hover them in the consciousness zone that will work best for them using the, the right amount of anesthesia. And if I know that someone is using, then I can hook up that machine because it's not something I would use on everyone and really tailor their, their anesthesia to them. Depending on the hospital, if you have insurance and your copay, you may be billed by the minute for your time in surgery. And those extra minutes you could have avoided. Dr. Coleman says it doesn't matter how you use marijuana. This all applies regardless of how people use marijuana, whether it's a tincture, whether they're smoking uh, or using oral, uh, it all works out the same. Dr. Coleman also says she asked teenagers, again in the operating room, away from their parents, if they use marijuana before starting the surgery. There may be situations where you're unconscious or, for some other reason, may not be able to talk to your physician. So, have a conversation in advance with your friends and people who may likely be with you when you might experience trauma. That they may need to tell your doctors, EMTs, etc., that you use marijuana. But we do see it quite a lot, actually. No one expects to be in a trauma, so it's, it's, no one thinks it's going to happen to them. So when we let people know that if they're marijuana users, 
they might have more pain after a trauma. They really don't think it's ever going to happen. And those patients are really difficult for us to control pain for. We have to use a lot of different types of pain medication. We often try to use nerve blocks to try and block the pain where we can. But it is a struggle, and we often have to make a lot of adjustments and really actively work on pain management for those. Dr. Coleman says typically where she has to use the most additional medicine is a colonoscopy. Well, it's one example that's easy for us to give because it's very relatable for a lot of people. Regular colonoscopy screenings are recommended to prevent colon cancers. Isn't this lucky enough to reach the age for screening? <laughs> Should be getting them. And since we generally use the drug propofol through the entire procedure, it's easy to see how much we use for one patient versus another. It's, it's a little more apples to apples than some of the other procedures that we do. So it really becomes a stark contrast in how much we need to use for someone who doesn't use marijuana at all versus someone who uses it multiple times a day daily. She recommends talking to your doctor and anesthesiologist in advance of surgery about tapering off your use. Right now, there isn't a set guideline for tapering or stopping use prior to surgery. What we definitely recommend is that people don't use marijuana the day of their surgery because if their mind is altered, then we can't really get consent. And if it's an elective surgery, we may cancel the surgery because legally we can't get a good consent if it's acceptable. But what I do recommend is that Patients talk to their surgeon beforehand, and they can then determine how they would like to taper or how they how far out they would like to stop based on the surgery they're having and their other medical problems. Even if you haven't used it in a week, still let your anesthesiologist or your surgeon know about it so that we can make adjustments. Really, the, the main point that, that we want to get across is it's just important to communicate with your healthcare providers. We really just want to do what's best for you. And we really want to make sure that you have the best experience that you can have when you come through our door. So the more information that you can give us about what you're using and, and how much and how often, the more we can do to give you that good experience. We know that we often see people on some of the worst days of their lives. And if we can do even a little thing to make it better for them and to reduce the pain a little bit and reduce the nausea and make sure that their, their surgical experience is, is good, then that's really what we want to do. Carrie Vogren and Kelly Christensen helped with this story. You're listening to the Tactile Traveler, empowering blinds and low vision people to explore the world and helping our sighted friends see the world in a new way. I'm Nick Eisenberg. Go! Off to the races. In this case, it's the Six Dot Dash, an annual fundraiser for the National Federation of the Blind of Colorado. A 5K race with lots of blind runners and walkers in it. If you run to win, or just for the fun of participating, or just for exercise, blindness doesn't have to stop you. 
I think for me, it's really therapeutic. It helps you clear your head. It helps you get rid of some of those stressors. And the, one of the biggest things is that, like being blind, your mobility is limited. You only can use, you can only move so fast with your cane when you're walking with it. But when you're tethered to someone else, you can move a lot more free. You can move very, very fast. And it's just, it's kind of liberating. That's Richmond, Virginia-based Paralympic medal winner Antoine Craig. His running career literally started on a shoestring, on an indoor track, when a friend told him she had seen a blind runner being guided by a sighted person. So they tied their hands together with a shoestring and decided to give it a try. It started way back when, when I was an undergrad, I had just lost my vision right around 2010 and I, I got into VCU around about 2012. And at that time, I was just trying to figure out my blindness and just how to navigate it. And I started going to the gym just as an extracurricular activity, just to give me something to do. And a friend said that she's seen people run with their hands tied together and we ended up giving it a try and the rest was history. He he soon found out that he didn't like distance running, but excelled in shorter races. I started running like 5Ks, 8Ks, 10Ks. I ran one half marathon back in 2016. And then after that, I was like, I'm not running anymore, anymore half marathons. So then I got into sprinting. And right around 2017, after the Rio Olympics, my athletic organization seen my friend now, David Brown, who is the fastest sprinter in the country, they seen him running in Rio and they, they made me aware of like, hey, you know, that you can try sprinting. So I was like, I'll give it a try. So in 2017, I ran my first race at the Desert Challenge Games. I kept training and training and I worked really hard. And in 2019, I was able to get fast enough to make it on my first U.S. national team. And I ended up running the Pair Pan Am Games in Lima, Peru, which was an amazing accomplishment for me at the time. I did okay. I got like fourth place, which wasn't good. You know, it was just my first time on an international stage. There was just so much going on and it was just a lot. And I wish I did better, but you know, it was a great experience. Antoine says the secret to success in short races, like sprints, is a really short tether and lots of practice working with your guide. Our tether is... It's kind of short, actually. It's really close. So you practice a lot. That's really the key. Having a lot more practice with your guy really helps out work out those kinks because without that practice, you, you probably could get tangled up like your guy pulls you or you're moving too slow or you're moving faster than your guy. So that can become problematic. So the tether, our hands getting tied together is one and just practice. It's like a, like a half an inch. <laughs> like it's a very slight amount of space between us. The other rule of thumb is no matter how fast the blind runner is, the sighted guide has to be faster. For safety reasons, your guide definitely have to get faster, be faster, because if I'm faster than my guide, I can get ahead of him and then we can cross each other, but that person have to make sure that they can do whatever speed that I'm doing and then some, just in case. I might have a really good day one day. You know, I might run faster, so that guide has to be able to keep up. Antoine says one of the best parts of running is the relationship you develop with your guide, like the one he has early in the morning with a running buddy. It's good you get to get out with a friend and then you get to talk and you kind of just bond and share experiences and have conversations. So it's, 
it's just a really peaceful thing to do because the streets are quiet the sun is not up yet it's one of those things that just help you like it just helps you clear your mind and especially having a buddy there makes it really awesome as well you're listening to the tactile traveler empowering blinds and low vision people to explore the world and helping our sighted friends see the world in a new way i'm nick eisenberg sighted guide cheyenne meyer is from McKinney, Texas. I was at a race back in 2015, and I saw a participant who was blind racing a triathlon, and I thought that was the coolest thing. I was really envious of his guide. I thought, what a cool experience that must be. So I met them after the race and started talking to them and said, hey, you know, I'd like to get involved in something like this. And they said, okay, well, we're meeting at the park later this week. Do you want to meet with us and we can teach you how to guide someone? And I had never met a person who was blind before. So my first practice was just a mess. I was so awkward and didn't know really what to do. But after that, I just kind of got the hang of it. And so after learning how to run guide, then I got interested in triathlon guiding. So I learned to ride a tandem bike and swim tethered to someone. And since then, the rest is history. I've been guiding people across the United States in races from 5Ks up to Ironman triathlons. Cheyenne has expanded her skills, including learning American Sign Language, so she can guide a deaf-blind woman is one of her running partners. I have. I started learning sign language back in 2017 so I could communicate better with people who are deafblind and use ASL. And so then I met up with a woman named Kathleen. She lives up in New Jersey. She was looking for a guide who could sign. And I was at the very basic level of ASL. But together, we've done several races, and she's helped me improve my ASL. So we're getting ready to do an Ironman and a half Ironman later this year together. Sometimes... Deafblind racers will have two guides, one who is ahead of them and tethered to the runner, and a second guide behind the runner, tapping signals like left turn ahead on the person's back. Occasionally, there are other times when a blind runner may use two-sided guides. Uh, but in running races, sometimes they will set it up where you have one guide for the first half and one for the second half, or maybe you have two guides. If one needs to drop out, then the other will still be there to help them get to the finish line. Cheyenne says guiding has helped her understand the potential of deaf and blind people. Accessibility is everything and inclusion is everything too. So really just showing the, the world that people with disabilities can do whatever they set their mind to, even if it takes a little bit of adaptation. Cheyenne says the best part is that guiding is fun. I raced by myself for a really long time uh, competitively, and once I started guiding, I found it's so much more fun to do it with someone else. You're helping them reach their goal, but also you have somebody to share the experience with. And now I don't think I could go back to solo racing. Bill Kellick helped with this story. You're listening to The Tactile Traveler, empowering blind and low vision people to explore the world and helping our sighted friends see the world in a new way. I'm Nick Eisenberg. Looking for a way to travel using someone else's money? You need to enter Flight for Sight competition. Flight for Sight is a contest for blind and low vision people who would like to travel by themselves with other blind people and or with other blind people and sighted traveling companions. His goal is to educate both blind and sighted people on the potential of blind people. Mike Walsh is Flight for Sight's executive director. That is an opportunity for people who are blind and low vision to educate people 
about whatever it is they want to educate the world about. They have a wide opening to educate sighted people. They can educate other blind people, other low vision people. Anything to do that they may want to do. Like, so they could do a case study about how they may have difficulty getting rides with a guide dog and trying to move that forward and influence other people to make that easier. There can be things where they want to just go out in the world and show other blind and low vision people that travel is very possible. The three winners will receive $10,000 to pay for or towards the trip the judges feel will be a good opportunity to educate other people. Mike came up with the concept of flight for sight while he began losing his sight and hearing as a result of Usher syndrome. Then he realized many sighted people didn't understand the potential of blind people and many blind folks didn't understand their own potential. There are two parts to winning. First, pitching your potential travel. And second, explaining how you'll make your trip an educational experience for other people. It can be through YouTube, giving lectures, social media, or other ways that you can help people learn from your experience. Don't use New York City as the destination of your trip, because in addition to your $10,000, you will automatically win a trip to New York. And that's in addition. They will go to New York City. There will be a gala at the end of the year in which they will present and talk about the things that they learned and the fun parts, the tough parts, and present in a way where the people at the gala will learn something more that night about people so far, Flight for Sight is doing a pilot contest, which was in May. They had over 100 people enter. It is certainly a pilot program in that we don't have the funding yet for the next round, and but we're trying to prove the case for this platform to be worthy of future donations and sponsorship. And the things that we're learning, we will make the application and all of our contact uh, will be that much stronger the next time around. We produce this program a month in advance, well before the winners have been determined. One of the applicants said they'll go to France and visit Louis Braille's home, the place where he went blind when he was three years old, playing in his father's shop, and then invented Braille as a teenager to people who want to enter races. Other examples are people who want to travel to Africa and give blind people white canes. Come to check out our contest, flyforsight.net, and you know, we're flyforsight, all one word, all over social media. What I want people to know is that people with disabilities do not need you feeling sorry for them. And in a lot of cases, they just need for you to understand like what they do, how they do it, and ways in which they need accessibility. But what separates the winners from the pack is the ones that have great examples of how they're going to share it on social media, what kind of videos are you going to make, blogs, and what evidence do you have that you've done, that you will execute on that, that you have the skill set to do that. You're listening to The Tactile Traveler, empowering blind and low-vision people to explore the world and helping our sighted friends see the world in a new way. I'm Nick Eisenberg. Why, it's my talking scale, reminding us that we'd like you to weigh in on how we're doing. Please let us know by sending an email to the tactile traveler at gmail.com. We spell Traveler the American way with one L. We'd like to hear your story ideas from all over the world. 
please send us an email with story ideas in the subject line to the tactile traveler at gmail.com. If you'd like to help underwrite this program, please send us an email with underwriting in the subject line to the tactile traveler at gmail.com. Transcripts of this program are available for our deaf listeners by searching the tactile traveler in any search engine. This program is also being broadcast on the Audio Information Network of Colorado and in additional states. It's also available by typing the Tactile Traveler into any search engine and available wherever you get podcasts. And by asking your smart speaker to play the podcast, The Tactile Traveler. We'd like to thank the following people and organizations that help make today's program possible. Be My Eyes Microsoft Accessibility Tech Support, Apple Accessibility Tech Support, Leslie Steffens, Pat Conorope, Lorraine Hutchinson, Debbie O'Leary, Sarah Williams, Sophia Williams, Kaylee Romero, and Wally Burley. You're listening to The Tactile Traveler, empowering blind and low vision people to explore the world and helping our sighted friends see the world in a new way. This has been a production of KDNK Community Access Radio, Carbondale, Colorado. 